Joseph Smith. He's someone I know well. He's the author of a worldview that I held for most of my life. I taught it to hundreds of people when I was a missionary. It's a religion and a gospel that I deeply believed in. One full of hope and meaning and community. And unique stories. Stories about where we came from and where we're going. Let me show you what Joseph Smith built and how he did it. How a non-religious, uneducated kid in upstate New York created a global movement that would gather huge numbers of followers in a very short time and who were pushed out from town to town, often with violence. I want to show you how these people held on to the vision and mission that Joseph Smith taught, the building of a new utopian society, one founded on celestial laws, one that was preparing for the end of the world and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So let me tell you the story of Joseph Smith, the church he built, and how that church and its mission still exist today. Hey, before we open up this large can of worms that I've been thinking about for many years, I want to thank the sponsor of today's video, the people who make this all possible. Thank you, BetterHelp, for sponsoring today's video. BetterHelp is kind of relevant to today's video because BetterHelp is a platform for therapy. A few years ago, I started seeing a therapist every week, not because I had some clinical mental health issue that I was trying to address, but rather because I wasn't feeling good. I knew there was things in my life that I needed to work through, and there are professionals for that. Going to therapy has changed my mind. It has changed my life. It has changed how I see the world, and it has made my life better, very objectively. BetterHelp is a platform that makes therapy more accessible to more people. You sign up for BetterHelp, you take a quiz that kind of tells them a little bit about you and your needs and your goals, and then they match you with a professional licensed therapist that you can start communicating with in as little as 48 hours. You can have your therapy sessions as a phone call, as a video chat, or even as a text message if you prefer that, if that's the most comfortable version of therapy for you. If your therapist isn't a good fit, you can change to a different therapist for free. With access to BetterHelp's growing network of professional licensed therapists, they have like tens of thousands of different therapists. You can find somebody who's the right fit for you. All of this makes finding a therapist much more frictionless than the traditional methods. I'm a major supporter of that goal because I believe therapy is a life changer, at least it was for me. So there's a link in my description. It's betterhelp.com slash Johnny Harris. When you click that link, you help support the channel. You also get 10% off your first month of BetterHelp. So you can try it out at a discount, see if it fits for you. So I'm grateful to BetterHelp for existing, but also for uh, sponsoring today's video. With that, let's dive back into this. Let's talk about the prophet Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith was born in the perfect place at the perfect time. It was the early 1800s, and the U.S. had just thrown off England to become a new country, and it was going through some massive growing pains. Most of these new Americans who had just left the old world rejected a lot of old world things, namely religion. Only 10% of white Americans regularly attended church at this time. So to help revive God, you have all these super charismatic preachers who left the cities and went out to the countryside to preach. And this led to an explosion of religious thought, especially in upstate New York. 
So now you have all these like hyper-reformist religions that were replacing old-style authoritarian type churches. All these new wild religious flavors that were more emotional, expressive, and personal. I mean, none of us were alive at this time, but you can kind of imagine like this brand new country founded on these new ideals. It was unprecedented times. America felt special and different, but also kind of scary. Revolution in the new world, new science, magical technology, new ideas, both wholesome and sinful, all of it speeding up at an increasing rate. For a lot of people, this was a sign, a sign that the end of the world was coming and that Jesus, like he prophesied, would come back to usher in this thousand years of glory for those who believed in him and a thousand years of fire for those who didn't. This was called the millennium. So a lot of these new churches that were cropping up kind of claimed to be the place that was preparing the earth for the second coming. Like they were God's chosen administrators on the earth in the final days before it all ended. It was scary, it was exciting, and God was talking to people again in new ways. And this is the context that Joseph Smith was born into in 1805, born to a mother who was swept up in the excitement of all these new religions and a father who wasn't really religious at all. It's kind of like a lot of people at the time, a family that was religiously lost, but not for long. In addition to being a frothy religious environment, upstate New York was also a place where people hunted for treasure. There was this culture of folk magic and legends that led to the search for riches and jewels that were potentially buried by Spanish explorers or pirates of the past, or artifacts that were hidden in Native American burial mounds. And their methods for hunting for all this treasure were mystical and magical. They used seer stones, crystals, rods, visions through dreams, all of this to help them locate buried treasure. And young Joseph Smith was very caught up in this treasure hunting craze. He wasn't educated, he barely had any schooling, he could kind of read and write. He wasn't religious, but from a young age, he showed himself as a skilled treasure hunter. I mean, let's keep some perspective. In all of our research, we didn't find a single like document showing that he actually found any treasure but he managed to convey to the people around him that he was an expert treasure hunter using mythical methods. So this is the context that you need to know to really understand this story. We're in upstate New York in the early 1800s. There is this frenzy of folk magic and treasure hunting, and the place is ablaze with religious fervor. And there's talk of the last days and the millennium of fire and glory that was coming any day now. But the story really begins in the spring of 1820. Joseph, a 14-year-old boy, gets curious about religion. And after visiting a bunch of churches and finding no answers, he decides to go into a grove of trees to ask God which church was true. This movie that we're watching right now, I know by heart because I've watched it hundreds of times, of course, dubbed in Spanish. I was a missionary in Tijuana, and the first thing that I would teach people was this story, and I would often show them this movie. I kneeled down and began to offer up the desires of my heart. So Joseph Smith is in this grove and he's praying. And after a run-in with the devil, exerting all my strength to call upon God, he sees a pillar of light brighter than the sun directly over his head. And within that light, he sees two people 
whose brightness defy all description. He finds out that it's God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. And Jesus goes on to tell him that none of the churches that he's been investigating are true. And that instead, Joseph is being called to do the work of God, to restore the real true church that had been lost from the earth, to restore this church, to prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus and the millennium that he will usher in. This event is referred to as the first vision, and it is the founding story of the LDS church, the Mormon church, like most people know it. As a member of the church, from a very young age, you learn this story. You sing about it, you talk about it, you study it, and every few years, the church comes out with a new video version representing the first vision. Okay, so this is just the beginning. A few years go by, Joseph doesn't tell anyone about his vision, but by 1823, Joseph is a late teenager, and one night, he's sleeping in his like little humble cabin with his family, and he says that an angel appears to him. The angel is named Moroni. By the way, if you ever see a Mormon temple, big white building, you will see a depiction of the angel Moroni on the top of that temple with a trumpet pointing east. But for now, he's an angel in Joseph Smith's room telling young Joseph that, yes, the second coming of Christ is right around the corner, and that, yes, just like God and Jesus told him a few years ago, he has been called to prepare the world for the second coming. And if that wasn't enough, Moroni tells him that there is a book that is written on golden plates that is buried in a hill near Joseph's house. The book is an important record of a group of Jews who left Jerusalem in 600 BC and came to the Americas. Anyway, I'll explain that in just a second. And don't worry, says Moroni, along with the plates, there's the gear you need to translate these plates into English. Joseph just needs to get a bit older and he'll be ready to translate the plates. At this point, Joseph tells his family what's been happening, and they believe him. So by the time he's 21, he's instructed to go to the hill Cumorah near his house and get the plates. Okay, so now Joseph Smith, in his 20s, he's this uneducated, unreligious treasure hunter, and he starts to focus in on something totally new. In the words of one believing Mormon historian, Richard Bushman, he starts to orient himself away from treasure and towards translation. He's becoming a prophet. So Joseph says he goes and gets these plates, and people try to rob him, but eventually he gets them secured. And in a little cabin in rural New York, Joseph begins the work of translating this stack of metal plates that no one else is allowed to see. He would sit on one side of a curtain so that no one else could see. And he says he looked through these stones at the Egyptian engravings on these golden plates, and they would turn into English and then he would dictate them out loud to a scribe, sometimes his wife or other early believers who were supporting him. And that scribe would write them down. At other points, Joseph didn't even need the plates to translate. He could hide them somewhere else, and he would use his personal seer stone, the one that he used back when he was just a treasure hunter before he says he was called as a prophet, this little chocolate-colored egg-shaped stone. He would put it into a hat, and then he would bury his face in the hat, and he said that the stone would light up with the words that he was supposed to dictate to his scribe. His scribe would write it down, and the Book of Mormon was being written. Now listen, all of this seems really weird and wild to us now, very easily like, okay, clearly this guy's making it up. 
But at the time, mystical visions and treasure hunting and seer stones, this was all very normal in society. Folk magic, Native American artifacts, none of this was very fringe. And Joseph, Joseph had been doing stuff like this for a decade, which is why his parents and other people in his community supported him. The difference though at this time is that he was blending his treasure hunting skills and his folk magic sensibilities with this religious revival that was happening at the time to create something kind of unique. So anyway, he's in his early 20s, he's translating the Book of Mormon. He faces a bunch of ups and downs. He goes through a few scribes. And after a very productive 90-day window, 24-year-old, barely educated Joseph Smith finishes dictating 588 pages of text that would become the Book of Mormon. Joseph says that he gives the plates back to Moroni and then takes the manuscript of the pages to a printer. That's how we have the Book of Mormon. This is my Book of Mormon. Maps. My early exposure to maps. So the Book of Mormon is incredibly important to this story because it was the main validator for Joseph Smith in those early days and continues to be a foundational part for believers in the LDS faith. That's because Joseph Smith wasn't religious or educated and now suddenly he's writing this Bible-like book in a few months. And yes, this book is definitely full of a lot of like full-blown copy and paste jobs from like the Bible. But there's also like a lot of really compelling stuff in here in terms of religious lessons, complex histories, nods back to like an understanding of Hebrew language and culture. This is not the type of guy that his town saw him as. He was a treasure hunter and a farm kid, not a religious man and definitely not a prophet. Mr. Smith, could you tell me more about that book? Yes. Yes, I could. Okay, so let's be clear on what Joseph Smith said the Book of Mormon is. It's not what a lot of people say, which is like the Mormon Bible. The book tells the story of a group of Jews in Jerusalem in around 600 BC. They're told to leave the city before it gets destroyed. So they leave the city, they walk in the desert for a while, probably to like Oman is what a lot of Mormons think. And then they build a boat and travel across the ocean for a very long time until they reach the Americas, somewhere in like North, Central, or South America. The foundation of the story is about these brothers of the original family who like eventually split off and they like hate each other and they grow up into these two different civilizations, the Nephites and the Lamanites, who are always fighting with each other and there's all these prophets and there's all this drama that happens. And the introduction to my Book of Mormon says, the Lamanites, these people who came over from Jerusalem, are quote, the principal ancestors of the American Indians. And a few years ago, they did change that to the Lamanites being among the ancestors of the American Indians. But yeah, the point is that the Book of Mormon is a history of these Jews turned indigenous Americans. And unsurprisingly, there's a whole community of believers who work to validate that this is actually a historic record. But no, in reality, there's no archaeological, genetic or linguistic evidence that supports the Book of Mormon's assertion that Jewish people migrated to the Americas around 600 BC. For believers, the most important part of this book is the climax of the whole thing, where in 33 AD, Jesus, having recently been crucified over in the old world in Jerusalem, gets resurrected over there and comes to visit the people in America, which is where this painting came from. This is a painting that is hanging in a lot of LDS churches. It shows Jesus Christ among the ancient civilizations of the Americas. Yeah. 
some pretty wild stories. So yeah, I know we're all over the place and we'll get back to Joseph Smith's life for a second, but as someone who has read this book dozens of times, I can tell you that when you're a believer, this is a really compelling piece of work. You can read these pages and you can read about the stories and the lessons and the metaphors and you can take a lot from it. And the biggest thing that you take from it is that it is proof that Joseph Smith was actually called of God to prepare the world for the second coming, that he was a legitimate prophet. So, Joseph Smith, by 1830, has the Book of Mormon, he has proof that he's a prophet, and he starts to gain followers. Followers that believe him, and a group of those followers get together in April of 1830 in a little house in Fayette, New York, and they start a church. At this point, Joseph Smith is behaving like a full-blown prophet. He says he's getting almost daily communication from Jesus. And he starts to develop a theology that is unlike anything else on offer. Turns out that God is actually a man with a body of flesh and bone. And he has a wife. God lives near a star that's far away. And we, all of us here on Earth, are these little eternal balls of light called intelligences. But... Our heavenly parents have birthed us into spiritual children. And then they sent us down onto this earth to get a physical body, to get married, to create an earthly family, to learn and to grow. So that someday we can return to live with God with our families. And then we can become like God with our spouses. We can create our own spiritual families in some other part of the universe. But in order to do that, we have to pass some tests here on earth. We have to complete certain rituals and demonstrate obedience to him. And in order to make this all happen, he needs to set up a church. The church needs to have proper authority. And there would need to be a savior that would come down to account for all of our sins so that we can be pure to enter the kingdom of God again. Luckily, one of our spiritual brothers named Jehovah, later called Jesus, volunteered to be this savior. Okay, but there's a big problem, which is that God's children are super rebellious. So over the years, God calls prophets to organize his church with the proper authority and to do all of these special rituals to teach them about Jesus. And eventually that truth gets eroded and it fades away and the world falls into apostasy until it's ready again when God calls another prophet to restore his authority and start the whole process over again. This happens over and over until eventually Jesus came. He was like the sixth prophet. He establishes his church, causes prophets and apostles, gives them the authority by putting his hands on their head. And then, of course, he suffers for our sins and dies on the cross. But just like has happened over and over, Jesus's church got corrupted. It got mixed with power and politics and the world fell back into the apostasy. This one's called the great apostasy. But eventually the world would be coming to an end. Jesus would be coming soon and things were about to get really bad. So God helped Europeans come across the ocean to take over North America, colonize the land and create a country that had freedom of religion. Also that a few decades later, Joseph Smith could be born and then called to restore his church. And that's how we get to the first vision. Jesus and Heavenly Father appearing to Joseph Smith in a grove, sending angels to him to tell him where to get the golden plates. And to solve for the whole authority thing, 
Joseph says that the apostles, the original apostles of Jesus Christ, came to him to restore the authority, the priesthood, that Jesus had given them. So now he could establish his church. There was a restoration. Joseph was the prophet of a newly restored church that he could talk to God. He could get instruction on exactly how to run God's kingdom here on earth to prepare the world for the millennium. Okay, that was a lot. And let me just say that was a very summarized version of LDS theology. Someday I'd like to make a video about the details because it's actually super complex and super wild. The point I'm trying to make here is that Joseph Smith's church did indeed have a lot of the ingredients of the religious movements of the time. Last days, apocalypse, preparing God's kingdom on the earth, preparing for the millennium. This was all trending at the time. This was not surprising. But a lot of this stuff was totally new, wild fringe doctrine. God has a body and a wife? This was a completely wild blend of Jewish mysticism, American folk magic, reincarnation, evangelical Christianity, and eventually he even wove in Freemasonry. A totally fresh thing. There was nothing quite like it. It was super unique and super potent and super polarizing. You either believed that Joseph Smith was an incredibly inspired prophet who was like revealing the truth that none of us had ever heard before, or he was just a brilliant creative visionary inventing this elaborate plan to dupe people. Which is what a lot of people in his village started to think as he started to gain followers. They had him arrested, calling him a disorderly person. He eventually gets released, and he realizes that he and his few members need to leave. This begins the long journey of the Mormons moving west. Joseph and his followers set out. He's now talking to God directly all of the time. And he says that the Lord is telling him to go to Ohio to await instructions for their actual final destination, the place that they're actually going to set up their new city, their millennial kingdom, this communal utopian society that would be the base for preparing the world for the second coming of Jesus. They would call it Zion. And this is the most important part of the entire story, Zion. If you want to understand Joseph Smith, and if you want to understand the rest of the Latter-day Saints movement, including modern Mormonism, you have to understand Zion. Joseph says that the Lord is telling him that he will give him the exact location of Zion. And he tells him that it will be, quote, on the borders by the Lamanites. Remember that the Lamanites are the American Indians. And so this actually works perfectly because at this time, the US government is ethnically cleansing North America and pushing first Americans west. So there's a lot of territory where white settlers are butting up against Native Americans. Zion's gonna be somewhere around here. So Joseph and his followers are now in Ohio and they are growing. People love this story. And the concept of Zion transitions from this sort of vague idealistic idea to a very solid plan, a new society called the New Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem from the prophecies of old. And it literally became a plan. Like he actually starts to sketch it on paper. We got these digital scans of Joseph Smith's sketches of Zion. He writes in extreme detail on exactly what this city will be. This whole thing was based on these gridded streets on perfectly parceled plots on no more than one square mile of land. 
Joseph writes that the home should be 25 feet from the street to leave room for a yard and plant gardens. All the houses were to be brick or brick and stone. And there should be farms all around this city that aren't too far. The central streets of this city nod to Joseph's love for Jewish history and culture. Zion Street, Jerusalem Street, Bethlehem Street, with the temple in the center of the city. Spoiler alert, this is how Salt Lake City and a lot of cities in Utah are actually designed, but that's for part two. I mean, what this shows is that Joseph was taking this idea of God's restored kingdom on earth totally literally, and it was going to be hyper-progressive, a new communal society where everyone would share with one another, the resources would be shared, and the whole thing would be governed by celestial laws and governmental structures, a new government run by the prophet where God could talk to his people while he prepared the world for its end. Zion was a vision that Joseph was uniquely good at rallying around. Charismatic and creative leader, prolific and inspiring, his followers became deeply dedicated to this mission of establishing Zion. And it becomes the main calling card for new converts. Joseph Smith's millennial kingdom is the place to be when the world ends, and the world's ending any day now. So the church is growing in Ohio. They still don't know where the final location of Zion is going to be. And meanwhile, Joseph is getting more and more and more of these revelations. And he's pushing the belief system of Mormonism further and further from mainstream Christianity. Joseph comes out and says there actually is no heaven and hell, but rather there are three kingdoms of heaven. All of us will be sorted into these different kingdoms depending on how obedient we were here on earth how much we accepted Christ and repented of our sins. There's even a spiritual prison and paradise that you go to after you die, but before you're sorted into the kingdoms. In order to get to the highest degree of kingdom, the celestial kingdom, you have to be married by the proper authority that will seal you to you and your family forever. And soon, Joseph says that more angels are appearing to him to give him the authority to do this sealing thing. Family is becoming core to Mormon theology. But the good times don't last. The locals in Ohio and their government don't love this vision of a new religious society, the flocks of new members of the church arriving to this super well-organized, efficient, unified group of people led by this charismatic prophet who has more and more fringe beliefs. One night, Joseph is violently dragged from his home by a mob. He's covered in tar and feathers. They're telling him to leave, and he does. Luckily, one of Joseph's missionaries and former scribes, Oliver Cowdery, had been out scouting where Zion should be, where the Millennial Kingdom should be set up. And he comes back and says he found the place, Jackson County, Missouri, 800 miles away. Indeed, and just as the Lord said, right on the border with the Lamanites. This would be Zion, the Lord tells Joseph, the place where he has appointed for the gathering of the saints. And now there's a revelation from the Lord saying that all of this land in Independence, Missouri should be purchased by the saints. Buy up as much land as you can. This is Zion. Oh, and it is revealed to Joseph that this area, Independence, Missouri, Jackson County, Missouri, is right next to the original Garden of Eden. Like where Adam and Eve, like the first people were. It turns out that Missouri is like the Holy Land. The epicenter for the end of the world and the Garden of Eden is in Missouri. So Mormons start buying up land and they start moving to Missouri. And they did this quickly. This wasn't theoretical. They thought that the second coming was like 
weeks or months or just maybe a few years away, Martin Harris, one of the early converts, asserted that, quote, in four years, every religion in the U.S. would be broken down and all would become Mormon and that the rest of the human race would just perish. And then he was so confident that he said that if it didn't happen, he would cut off his own hands. I mean, they were serious about building Zion in Missouri and quick. Okay, but not so fast. The locals, like, are not into this. They hear about this swarm of Mormons coming to their county who want to turn their city into a new religious communal society and prepare for the apocalypse. And now they're arriving by the thousands, which means they will have more political power soon. They start to get scared that the Mormons are plotting a takeover of their private property, all in the name of building Zion. And they're not going to stand for it. They want the Mormons out. So they start sabotaging them with violence, vandalizing their stores, destroying their homes, assaulting Mormon leaders. It gets really violent. And at first, Joseph tells his followers to not fight back. And once again, the Mormons are driven out. The next five years are years of conflict for Joseph and his growing church. They're on the move all over the Midwest, at each stop facing violent resistance from local residents and government officials. So Joseph and his followers are done being passive. They start fighting back, and it escalates into basically a full-blown war. The governor of Missouri issues a literal extermination order, saying, quote, the Mormons must be treated as enemies and must be exterminated or driven from the state if necessary for public peace. It's getting really bad. So they flee once more to Illinois, where the government, who includes a young lawmaker named Abraham Lincoln, gives them a special charter to create a city and a government that is fit for their unique Zion principles. They call this city Nauvoo, Hebrew for beautiful or beautiful place. Okay, so even though the Lord had said to Joseph that he had prepared Missouri to be the place for Zion, the saints were going to have to settle for Illinois for now. And they feel safe, protected by this charter, and they start creating Zion. There's a total merger between church and state, a complete religiously run settlement where Joseph appoints himself to be in charge of the courts as well as the newly strengthened militia. They now have a full army to protect themselves. Joseph had been sending missionaries to Europe to preach about the gospel and invite people to come join his vision of Zion. And one of those people is my like great, great grandfather who was converted by a missionary in England and then traveled to the United States with his family and pregnant wife in pursuit of finding Zion. And they arrived to Nauvoo, a city that eventually grew to be more populous than Chicago. And it's in Nauvoo where Joseph says that an angel appeared to him and demanded multiple times against his will that he take on multiple wives, that those wives are sealed to him. His first plural marriage is to a teenager, and he goes on to have 40 wives in just three years. Many of them were married to other people, but then were sealed to Joseph the prophet. What I find striking here is that up until this point, you have this meticulous documentation of every single revelation and theology rule and new policy in the church here in what's called the Doctrine and Covenants. But polygamy stayed quiet and private. It was one of those revelations reserved for just Joseph and the leaders that he chose. By 1844, the Zion dream is actually catching fire. It's growing in Illinois. And Joseph decides to run for president. Now, he didn't have a big chance of winning. 
But in his mind, and the mind of his followers, this was the natural next step. They were establishing Zion, and Zion was going to be the new society on Earth. But this presidential campaign miserably backfires, because now he is seen as a legitimate political threat. He's too good at gaining new followers. It gets worse when one group of former Latter-day Saints, who didn't agree with Joseph, decide to publish a newspaper in Nauvoo that criticize him for polygamy and generally his leadership. Joseph is done messing around at this point. He's become very militant, and he responds by sending his militia to destroy their printing press. He declares martial law. And now the government of Illinois, who had given them this sort of safe charter, sees this chaos, and they're not into it. And they arrest Joseph for attempting to incite a riot. Now, this was one of many run-ins with the law that Joseph Smith had didn't cover them. Some of them were legitimate. Some of them were trumped up. But now he's caused a real disruption. He gets locked up in jail. And two days later, a mob of more than 200 men storm this jail. They climb up to the second floor where Joseph and his brother are, and they shoot at him. He tries to jump out the window, and he falls to his death. The prophet is dead at 38. Joseph Smith is now a martyr. He died with a Book of Mormon in his hands, defending his vision, his belief in his own story. This poured fuel on the fire of his vision for Zion. But the Latter-day Saints start to realize that if they're going to build Zion, it's not going to be in the United States. They need to look further afoot. They need a place far away where they can build their millennial kingdom without being harassed for it. So they look far to the west, to Mexico. And the next chapter of the story is the move into Mexico and the establishment of their Zion next to a large salty lake in the high desert. And that is a story I'll tell you in part two. But for now, I want to just tell you my thoughts on Joseph Smith. As someone who spent most of my life believing this story, basing my life and my worldview around it, doing this story and looking at it from an objective historical lens has taught me a lot. Joseph Smith created something really powerful. You can't deny that. It was a story about the last days. It was a story full of treasure and visions and angels and modern day revelation from God. It was a story about a chosen people, a utopian society of one heart and one mind, safety, enlightenment. There's a reason why every year Latter-day Saints go back to that hill in upstate New York where Joseph said he found the plates and they put on this insanely ambitious production on a stage that's like 10 levels deep with almost a thousand characters where they reenact the story of Joseph Smith, their prophet. They reenact him finding the plates, translating them, and then they act out the story of the Book of Mormon. There's a reason why Latter-day Saints sing a song called Praise to the Man, where they laud Joseph Smith, the prophet who opened the last dispensation, who restored the truth to the world. I believed this. I believed this well into my 20s. I found deep comfort in it. I found community in being a part of a religion that was so different than every other religion and that was very often mocked for it. The martyrdom and the persecution of Joseph and his followers became proof that this was true and that it was being persecuted in these last days, just like the prophecies in the Bible told us about. And I was compelled by this idea of the last days. The problem with getting caught up in the beauty and the comfort and the narrative of being a chosen people in the last days is that it allows you to ignore. 
I think it's what a lot of people have done over the decades with Joseph's story. They ignore. They ignore something that I guess is plain for me to see now on the other side of this. Joseph Smith was a charismatic leader who knew how to tell stories about magic, about visions, and about treasure. He had known how to do that since he was a teenager, well before he decided he was going to become a prophet. He found an audience in doing this. He attracted people to him with his visionary skills, and he used those skills to invent a complex set of stories about Native Americans actually being Israelites, about heavenly parents preparing the world for its end, and about the priesthood, this authority that we all must participate in to receive the rituals and ordinances that only one church can administer. And eventually he used these stories to build a movement around his vision that allowed him to take 40 wives and build an army and break laws and bully his enemies. When you are a Latter-day Saint, these facts are written off as anti-Mormon literature or persecution. But for me, having left the church and spent years rewiring my brain and my programming of these stories, I see them as facts. And frankly, they're not that surprising. This is the same old story of a charismatic, visionary man who tells a story of apocalyptic endings to gain followers, to gain power, and then decides that he deserves a lot of women and then he dies for the cause, leaving a movement that continues his vision. Oftentimes those movements get more and more dogmatic. They use shame to keep their people close to them, and they revere their prophet long after that prophet is dead. And yet, what's complicated about this is I can't help but feel a deep sense of sadness for having lost my belief in Joseph's story. I can't explain it, but these stories are incredibly comforting when you believe in them. They are motivating. These creative stories, unlike any other belief system, can be really beautiful. And that is a paradox that there's really no resolution for. There's a lot more to say on this, but I'm gonna save it for part two on this series where we see what happens next after Joseph is murdered and the Latter-day Saints move west to find their vision of Zion. Okay, well, thanks for watching. If you're still here, um, I know that was a bit of a emotional roller coaster uh, there at the end, especially if you are someone who is associated with the church in any way. And there's a lot there. And I know in making this video, I felt a lot of feelings and rehashed a lot of things. But I think doing it, telling this story has been pretty cathartic for me. And I'm really looking forward to the discussion in the comments about what others feel about this stuff. Let me tell you about a couple things. Number one, um, I'm really grateful for those who support us over at the newsroom. The newsroom is what we call our Patreon. It is a community of people who support the independent journalism we're doing here on the channel. Newsroom members get an extra video every month. Um, it's a vlog that is a behind the scenes look at what it's like to be here in the studio with us 
running this independent journalism studio on YouTube, which is a fun experiment. You meet the people behind the scenes. You see our processes. You see our shenanigans. It's a good time. You also get access to my scripts and some music. But most importantly, the people who are there are mostly there because they believe in what we're doing and they want to support, which is awesome. Also, I'm really into maps, which is not new to many of you. I designed a poster that you can have on your wall. It is called All Maps Are Wrong, and it displays like 96 different map projections, the different ways that you can show our spherical globe on a flat plane. So that is for sale. I think we sold out, but I think we've ordered a new batch. So that should be for sale. I hope it's for sale. I hope it's not sold out. If you're like a video photo person, we have LUTs and presets, which are just ways to color your photos or your videos the way that we color our photos and videos. We develop these with a professional colorist. They reflect kind of our look and feel. You can buy those and support the channel and use them. At the end of the day, you being here, commenting, showing your support, showing your love, watching these videos uh, is the best way that you can support us. So I appreciate you being here. And we're just going to keep making lots of videos. Thanks for being here. Talk to you later. Bye.